We're going to move on to radiation safety, and then we'll take a break after that. It's my pleasure to welcome Jason um, Tavel, who is a physicist. We'll spend the next hour and 15 minutes going over radiation safety. And as we said before, for the those who are recertifying, this is 15% of your exam. So Jason will spend some time really covering those things. Some of it is just pure memorization that you'll have to do, but a lot of concepts that we'll cover. So it's our pleasure to welcome uh, Jason Tavel back. Hi, thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, for the next hour and change, we're going to navigate through the excitement of radiation safety and protection, and we'll be coming back later on this afternoon to do some questions uh, and some mock exams as well. So um, if you have some questions, we can certainly handle them then. In, to, to get started, we really need to just talk about some units that you may or may not be familiar with. Um, everyone's probably heard of the Rankin or the RAD, but there's a few other units out there that you may be responsible for on an exam. As we're getting into um, a more universal world, we're trying to make common language uh, amongst the countries in radiation exposure. Uh, here in the U.S., we use terms like Rankin, where elsewhere they may use words like Kerma and Gray. So we're going to talk about the relationships of those units. First, just a little remembering that the Rankin is the unit uh, of exposure. It's the amount of X or gamma radiation that will produce one, elect one electrostatic charge per cubic centimeter of air. Um, that's a pretty dry definition. I don't think you really need to remember that. What is important is the Rankin is 2.58 times 10 to negative fourth coulombs per kilogram, and that's a unit of electrostatic charge. That's the basic unit of exposure. Uh, and the key here is that it's an exposure in air. So the Rankin, very basic unit, it's our initial unit of exposure, and you can only talk about a Rankin as a unit of exposure in air. In the international unit, elsewhere in the world, other than the U.S., they'll use terms like KERMA, which stands for kinetic energy released in the medium. Here, instead of coulombs per kilogram, they'll use joules per kilogram. And at some point, they're going to replace the Rankin with the KERMA. Um, I don't believe they've done that yet, but that's coming very, very soon. So we may want to get familiar with KERMA instead of Rankin. Now, once you have a unit of exposure in air, we have to talk about what's happening to that exposure next. Here we're going to be entering some type of medium. Uh, in, in our industry it's going to be some type of tissue. So we have to think about a weighting factor of tissues that are um, absorbing a radiation dose. So each different type of tissue will have a different weighting factor and we call that an F factor. Uh, and here for 100 keV photons, fat has an F factor of 0.91, muscle 0.96, bone 1.5. Um, and to get a, a, a feel for these F factors, as you see that the density of the tissue increases, so does that F factor. So you could start to think that the F factor is going to talk about how the radiation is going to interact in that tissue and what type of dose will be deposited. Here in fat, um, not a very dense uh, tissue. Um, there's certainly a lower F factor. And we use these F factors for converting the Rankins into a RAD. Now, a RAD stands for a radiation absorbed dose. So once we have a unit of exposure, you can take that unit of exposure in the rank and multiply it by your F factor if you know what tissue you're talking about, and that's how they magically come up with the RAD. 
Uh, I know in our world we talk about Rankins and RADs kind of interchangeably, but it is important to know where they get each one from. So a Rankins and exposure in, in air, a RAD is once we hit some type of tissue medium, we could, if we know what tissue we're talking about, muscle, fat, bone, we can multiply it by this F factor to get a more realistic dose, and that's where we get the RAD from. Um, and a RAD, uh, for the scientists out there, is 100 ergs per gram. In the international world, they don't use RADs. Um, they use the word gray, and that's the SI unit for radiation absorbed dose, SI for systems international, and 100 RADs is equal to one gray. So you wanna divide a RAD by 100, and then you can get the gray. I would expect to see RADs and grays on the exams coming up this year and following. They're trying to get everybody into the international world, and gray is a very common unit of exposure. If anyone was following the um, uh, the disaster in Japan, they were using the international units quite frequently, grays, not rads. Now once we talk about our radiation dose and we have our unit of exposure, it has now entered a medium, we've converted it into a rad because we knew what tissue we were talking about, we need to think about something called the LET or the linear energy transfer. And that's the amount of energy absorbed by the medium per unit length, meaning how much energy is given up in an amount of space, or how much KEV is deposited in that tissue per micrometer. Now, that brings us to another term called the relative biological effectiveness, or RBE, where different types of radiation will have a different biological burden. So the lead and the RBE are definitely related to each other. So let's talk about that. From the lead, we can say, hey, X-rays and gamma rays have a certain biological effectiveness. So we're gonna give them a quality, and let's give them a quality, and we'll give them a reference quality of one. If you're dealing with a beta particle, um, that has a similar let to X-rays and gamma rays, we're gonna give that a quality factor of one as well. But if you look down at alpha particles, for example, um, here we see that they have a quality factor of 20. And that's because alpha particles have a, a very, very, very high let, or very, very high linear energy transfer. Um, alpha particles used to commonly be used in smoke detectors. Uh, some smoke detectors have an americium source in them, and they, they have an americium source, and next to that source is a an ionization chamber, and the source is constantly exposing that ionization chamber. Once smoke gets in there and blocks that path, since alpha particles have a very high let, they are all attenuated in the smoke, there's a break in the circuit and the smoke detector goes off, and that's how some of these smoke detectors work. And that only works because alpha particles have such a high let, they give up all their energy in such a small path length that the energy now never reached that ionization chamber. So using that quality factor is where we get to the final stage of the REM. The REM is gonna be a radiation absorbed dose times your quality factor. And the REM stands for a radiation equivalent man. Um, so one rad of gamma rays I'd mentioned has a quality factor of one, so then you'll have one REM, that's easy enough. But if you had um, an absorbed dose of one rad of alpha particles, we would actually multiply that up and say, well that equivalent biological damage is really 
20 rem. So here you could see the difference of gamma rays and alpha particles, and you have to know what energy you're dealing with and what type of radiation you're dealing with. Um, if we recall several years back, there was a, a Russian scientist who was assassinated by polonium, polonium-210, and it was alpha particles. They gave a small amount of alpha particles in a glass, he drank it, and it was such high biological damage, high ionization, it was able to kill him. So that same amount of a substance that was gamma rays would not have caused that damage at all, but here, since they were alpha particles, it was 20 times more, more damaging. So it's important to know the relationship between RADs, REMs, and, and Rankins. Now, here in the, in the REM, there's also an international unit for that, and they call that the sievert. And again, it was 100 RADs per gray, it's 100 REM per sievert. So at least they kept the math similar for you, which makes life a little bit easier. Um, here's the good news. A little summary for you. Rankin is an exposure in air. The RAS is the radiation absorbed dose, which is the Rankin times an F factor. F factor is a tissue factor, and that depends on really the density of the tissue and how the radiation is going to interact in that tissue. And that brings us to the REM, where we take our RAD times a quality factor, and that's a quality factor of the radiation itself. And here we have a, uh, the international unit as well. But the good news is, in the diagnostic nuclear medicine environment, the F factors are all approximately 90%, and the quality factor is one, so they usually talk about these as interchangeably, uh, a RAD, a REM, and a Rankin. Um, so you may hear people talk about, hey, this person was exposed to uh, you know, 10 RADs, uh, 10 Rankin, 10 REM. Um, you're not supposed to use them like that, but often we do, and it's okay because we're really within 10% of each other when we're talking about doses. But uh, to be more accurate, Rankin exposure in air, RAD in the medium, and REM is measuring that biological effectiveness. So when you're comparing um, different types of studies, it's important to get into the REM so we're in the biological effectiveness. And that brings us to the effective dose equivalent. This was a term introduced by the International Commission on Radiation Protection, or the ICRP. The ICRP, incidentally, is the international world of radiation protection. Here in the U.S., we use the NCRP, or the National Council on Radiation Protection. They take their recommendations from the ICRP, and they, and they, and they generate it down. Um, and effective dose equivalent is used to represent the whole body dose that would result in the same overall risk as a non-uniform dose delivered to the subject. And what that really means is we need to figure out what the effective dose is for an exposure, say, of a chest x-ray compared to a CAT scan, compared to a bone scan, compared to a, uh, a MIBI study. And we want to figure out, well, if we don't have a non-uniform dose, um, we need to kind of waited to see, well, what's that going to be over the course of the whole body? Let's just say you had a scan that was going just to the heart. Well, what's going to be the total body effectiveness of that? So we have to talk about the effective dose equivalent where we bring everything in radiation and everything in radiation exposure into an effective dose equivalent, and the unit for that is the REMS and the sieverts. And that's why we talked about relative biological effectiveness. Um, it's important that everything gets into units of REMS so you can compare them properly. Um, I gave you a quick little conversion on the bottom. I was thinking about the math, so I threw one out there again. Um, one rem is uh, 10 millisieverts, um, in case you're playing with the math a little bit. Now, the effective dose equivalent we spoke about is a measure of risk. 
An effective dose equivalent is a theoretical risk of developing a harmful effect from that exposure. Um, as I said, it allows for a comparison between internal exposures of different types of radiation and different types of sources. Once we're in units of REMS, we can now say, and we get this all the time, hey, I just had a MIBI study, how many chest x-rays is that? Uh, and we get that question not infrequently, or how many airplane rides is that? Well, once you can break everything into REMS and get it down to that, that final level, you could start comparing one to the other. In nuclear medicine, however, things get a little trickier. Um, x-ray exposure is pretty easy. We got an x-ray exposing an area, we can talk about that. In nuclear medicine, though, we have to talk about how the isotope is distributed throughout the body and how one organ is exposing another organ. And what they did was, by the side of nuclear medicine years ago, established a committee that came up with uh, the MERD formula, or the Medical Internal Radiation Dose Formula. And this is something very important that, that often is, is asked or, or questioned on exam. And what a MERD calculation does is it uses these standard models of a man um, and using Monte Carlo simulations, um, we can figure out the radiation transport to, to estimate the dosed internal organs. Uh, and they use these MERD calculations to come up with the FDA package inserts. Incidentally, the FDA package inserts would be something that you'd want to have a little bit of working knowledge on. If you go back to your labs and you are doing nuclear cardiology, take a look and, and ask the chief tech for the package inserts, and you could see the radiation dosimetry. There'll be a table of that in every package insert. Nice thing to have, a nice thing to know about, just a good reference, especially when patients ask. Uh, also, it could be something you may be responsible for on an exam. Uh, normally, when they, when they ask in exams about dosimetry, they talk about whole body doses, and those are going to be on all the package inserts. Um, and what these MERD calculations do and how they generated these FDA package inserts is really calculating the dose from one organ to another. And the way they did it was they had to make some assumptions. They had to assume that when you injected the radiation into a person, it is un uniformly distributed in the organ, which we know is not always true. Um, you know, the liver may not take up the radiation completely uniform, and that's a pretty good organ that doesn't do that. Um, if anyone is in the nuclear medicine world and you look at a liver scan, they're never completely uniform, and hearts certainly don't take up the radiation in a uniform way. Um, but that is an assumption you have to make because it's impossible to calculate it otherwise. So there is a bit of, a, of an overestimation there. Um, and you also are assuming that the organ size for the standard man is the same for everybody, which we know is definitely not true. So there's definitely some limitations there. The other issue, which isn't a huge issue, is they didn't take this down to the microdosimetry level. Uh, and if you talk to any, any super microdosimetry physicists out there, they're going to get all upset about it. But it is what it is. Uh, and I just needed to let you know there is some limitations to the MERD method. Now, using this MERD method where they injected a radioisotope into some standard models and then they used Monte Carlo simulations for that, they were able to come up with some effective doses. And here, and these are very arguable doses. Um, I could already hear the arguments happening. Technetium MIBI scan 40 millicuries, about 2.2 rem or, or 22 millisieverts. Um, I've actually seen some other articles out there that are lowering that, and they're trying to lower that effective dose as they're getting a little, a little better with the calculations. But that's a pretty, a pretty well accepted calculation there of 2.2 rem for a 40 millicurie dose, and that's about right. If you're doing a, um, a stress rest study of 10 millicurie rest, 30 millicurie stress. That's about right, 2.2 rem. And comparing it to a thallium, which is about three millicuries, you got 1.8 rem. 
those numbers are very similar. So when you're talking about dosimetry and saying, well, which is a bigger dose, the, the thallium scan or the MIBI scan, they really are very similar. They're in the same worlds, and especially when the doses come in for the MIBI scans, they may not be exactly 10 millicuries. They could be eight millicuries, they could be 12 millicuries. So you definitely be plusing a minus, you know, up to 10% really. Uh, and that could certainly affect the dose. So the doses are very similar. When you start to get into um, the thallium technetium combo scans, then the doses will start to go up. Uh, and I've seen plenty of labs do a three millicurie thallium rest followed by a 30 millicurie technetium stress. And that's gonna be the biggest dose out there. But to compare it to a cardiac cath, here I gave you a number of 2.8 rem. Now that's a number that I took off of some, some pretty common uh, health physics society websites. That number is absolutely hokey. Um, I mean, it all depends on how heavy the foot is, how hard the case was, but that's a number that's out there that you see a lot. So you're gonna see that when, when some people are comparing cardiac caths to you know, perfusion scanning, that the numbers are pretty similar, but I think as, as active cardiologists, you know that's not really true, that you can certainly double and triple and 10 times that dose from a cardiac cath pretty easily. Um, CT angio, on the other hand, is a, pretty, is a pretty low dose study compared to the others out there. CT angio, you don't normally um, change those protocols too much. There's not a long dwell time over the heart, and with the CT angio, you are limiting that CT to just the heart area, which is great, and it doesn't uh, have a huge dose, you know, about 0.5 to 1.2 rem, which is a big spread, and that really depends on patient size. A lot of the CT scanners have uh, an auto-modulating MA, meaning it'll adjust um, the photon flux to the patient based on the patient's size. So you could have some pretty low doses for some pretty small people. Um, so we really are in the same category of doses. We're not off by a factor of 10 when we're comparing all these exams. And that's just a, a good little chart to keep in your head when we're talking about comparing doses. So you have this, is this in your handouts, the little quizzes? I don't know if, all right, so we, we do have these in the handouts. Um, I'd like to at least go over the answers for you so you have them. I don't know if the answers made it in there. Um, and these are just some common questions to kind of get you thinking about some possible exam questions. Uniform radiation exposure in air is, whoop, sorry about that. And there are those answers. You could circle them on your, on your quiz sheets there. I don't think you have two slides. Do you have the answers on your slides? Yes, no? You got them, all right. Last time they didn't have them, so I apologize. Um, so there are the answers for that one, uh, and those came you know, right, out of the, right out of the slides before. And these are some pretty common first group of questions. You know, when they, when they weight the questions for easier to hard, these are kind of in the easier category. Some basic definitions, um, the REM, uh, and question number three is the relative biological effectiveness. Remember exposure in air and air karma were the, were the, um, were the rank in. Um, so just want to get used to the units and what they're defined for. Uh, always good to have in a conversation when you're talking uh, about exposure and dose. And it is important to be able to convert from RADs to REMs uh, into Sieverts and Grays. Um, I know on, on board exams I've seen recently there have been questions in RADs and answers in grays. So I don't know if they're doing that on purpose to try to confuse people, but it's something that you just want to know that RADs, REMs, Sieverts, grays, it's a factor of 100. Which brings us into some basic radiation exposure stuff we want to get familiar with. Natural background radiation, um, we're going to talk about man-made radiation, we're going to talk about dose limits. Uh, and dose limits are going to be a real, real popular uh, exam topic, so we're going to get into those guys too.
Background radiation, again, another source for contention amongst um, scientists today, because if they're not arguing with each other, what are they really doing? Background radiation, they talk about about 360 millirem is the background radiation that each person receives in the US. Um, and you can see that you get most of that radiation from radon. Radon contributes to about 55% of your background radiation. Radon is a heavy gas, it's an alpha emitter, uh, and it's, it's found, found here, and it was a part of the decay chain from the Big Bang. Um, and that accounts for really most of the background radiation, 55% is from radon. The problem with this, this 360 millirem is that's really not everybody. What they did was they took the radiation exposure over the, over the country and they divided it by the population. And so some people may get more, some people may get less. Uh, but what you do want to take home from this slide is that it's approximately 360. You may see a number of approximately 400 millirem. I can tell you that the ICRP is looking to increase that number to over six or 700 millirem. And the reason for that is not because of background radiation change, but if you look at the yellow section of this slide, it's got other sources of radiation. You've got consumer products, not much of a change there. Nuclear medicine procedures, uh, maybe there's been a bit of an increase in medical and nuclear medicine procedures. Medical x-rays is where that number is actually going up. Um, due to the increase of CT for general screening, the population's radiation exposure is increasing. Uh, and they're looking to increase that number from 360, 400 up to over six, seven, or 800 millirem, and that's because of the overuse of CT in the United States. So. Um, we go around and we lecture hospital to hospital about limiting CT as ER screening tools. Um, it's a tough argument to sell. If a person comes in with, with belly pain or head pain, it's hard not to have them get a CAT scan to see what's going on, but it is increasing the radiation exposure of people here in the U.S. And on top of that, um, there are plenty of facilities that are doing multiple CAT scans a week. Um, and that's jacking up everybody else's radiation exposure. So when you talk about background radiation, I say, hey, you're getting about 400 millirem a year. It may not be you. It's averaged over the population. We're getting our background radiation from cosmic radiation. You have to realize that the sun and the stars are sending a constant stream of cosmic radiation to the Earth. Um, and you don't, you don't see it, you don't feel it, but it is exposing us. And there's going to be differences in that radiation due to elevation. Uh, if any of us flew uh, to Denver, um, we're certainly getting a higher radiation dose being here today than we would be if we were hanging out in, say, Salt Lake City. Uh, where we're lower. So the higher you are to the sun, the higher your radiation exposure is because you're getting a, a higher concentration of the cosmic radiation. Um, when they talk about background radiation exposure and you think about where you are in the U.S., in, the, in New York, where I'm from, you get around three to 400 millirem a year. When they talk about here in Denver, it goes up to five to 600 millirem a year, and that's just due to the elevation. We're getting it also from the land, and you have to realize that there's radiation everywhere there, everywhere that we're stepping. There's radioactive materials, uranium, thorium, radium, and that exists naturally in the soil and the rock. Uh, and that's nothing we could do anything about. It's out there. Uh, there are facilities that have a slightly higher radiation level in the basements, and that's just due to the concrete mix they were using in the cinder blocks. So that's just things to be aware of that we're being exposed to radiation everywhere we go. And these are some nice thoughts to have in your head when you're talking to your patients about radiation exposure. I don't want to be exposed to anything. Well, we're being exposed already. Let's talk about how much radiation we're being exposed to in excess of what you already are. And if we could keep it in multiples of background, I think we're doing a pretty good job. 
We're also being exposed internally. All people have internal radiation. We have potassium-40 in our body, and we also have carbon-14 in our body, and no carbon-14 is what they use for radioactive dating when they find old bones. So we're certainly radioactive, and we are exposing ourselves. We are also exposing people next to us. Very, 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 very low numbers. However, realize we are radioactive, and we are exposing, um, exposing our spouses and our neighbors. We're also being exposed to uh, medical sources of radiation, diagnostic x-rays, nuclear medicine procedures. And this is where the, the background radiation number really doesn't make a whole lot of sense for everybody because you may not have had any medical procedures that had x-rays, yet um, you're being averaged out with your neighbor who had 14 CAT scans for belly pain last week. So that's why the numbers don't make a whole lot of sense, but over the population, they do kind of average out pretty nicely. However, with the increase of of CT screening, we are going to see those numbers go up, and I expect within the next five years they're going to double that number. We're also being exposed to consumer products. I gave you the list of different, of different uh, products you're being exposed to. Uh, one that people are coming up with these days are the x-ray security screening uh, systems in the airports. Um, at the last uh, lecture we did, there were some questions about that. I'll touch on it really quick. It's a very, very low-dose x-ray called the backscatter x-ray. Um, it's fractions of a millirem. So it's pretty low numbers, but they do add up over time, over the course of the population. There, there was um, americium, americium-241 in smoke detectors. They're kind of phasing that out. Uh, and there's certainly radiation in, in tobacco products. Uh, some ceramics had them. Um, so there's radiation everywhere. Here are some common doses that people like to talk about. Hey, what, what's my radiation exposure compared to, uh, say, a flight from Los Angeles to London? Los Angeles London is about five millirem. Not a large number, uh, but it can add up over time. So realize that there is radiation exposure um, in everything we do. Here, I got this from the Health Physics Society website. They were using a natural background of only 300 millirem. So you could see that on an exam, they may say, what's the natural background radiation? The answer is three to 400 millirem. And that's where you usually see it. You're not gonna see 300 or 400. They won't do that to you. You may see a 360 in there because that's on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's website, so they're going to use some standard numbers, but 300 to 400 is the magic number. Uh, and I threw in some extra numbers here. Uh, barium enema, about 870 millirem, and here we went with a cardiac cath. Uh, and I just used the skin dose there, which is the entrance skin exposure of 26,000 millirem, um, which is a pretty big number. Uh, and, but comparing that to, to radiation therapy, uh, six million millirem uh, is what we're giving patients in radiation therapy, so it's really not even on those scales. Which brings us into the dose limits. There is, um, we have to consider the doses that we're giving to the public from occupational sources, meaning you're injecting a patient with radioactive material, how much are they exposing everybody around them, and we have to make sure that those limits are okay. Also, you may have a CT, you may have an x-ray machine in your, in your practice, and we have to make sure that we protect the public from that. So the magic number here is that the dose limit to uh, the non-occupational people or the public or the general dose limit is 100 millirem per year. And that's a number that you have to know. That's a number that's often cited on exams. 100 millirem per year is the dose limit to the public areas or the non-occupational dose limit, they call that. And that's 100 millirem per year. So if you have a secretary working in your facility who is not a radiation worker, we need to keep keep that person's number to 100 millirem per year, uh, and also maybe the office right next door, and 100 millirem per year is the same as one millisievert per year, divide the number by 100. 
non-occupational dose limits to continue. Um, sometimes you may have a patient who is uh, being um, irradiated and they're going to go home and expose just a limited number of people one time to irradiation exposure. And it may be impractical to keep that to 100 millirem. The example would be a person is getting a, a maybe scan, they're going to go home, they're going to spend a lot of time with their family. Well, the 100 millirem limit doesn't really work there. So what they do allow uh, here in, in the federal government, and they do it internationally as well, is an infrequent exposure from others for medical procedures. Meaning, if you've got an x-ray machine and you're constantly exposing the person next door to some low-level x-ray scatter, well, their dose limit's 100 millirem. But if you inject a patient with something and they're gonna go home and they're gonna expose their family to that one-time medical procedure per year, then you're allowed to increase that number to 500 millirem. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because um, we have to realize that that 100 millirem is a very, very low number for the general public, but they do allow for some extra exposure if it's only gonna be an infrequent time. So here, you may see an exam question for a non-occupational limit due to infrequent exposures, and that's gonna be 500 millirem. So there is a difference between the two, and it's important to kind of wrap your hands around the differences. The general population limit is 100 millirem. But if you know that there's a known medical procedure and you're able to ascertain you know, what the dose is gonna be to those other family members, you can increase that number to 500. Uh, and that's also right there in the laws and in the books. Uh, and what we do there is, you know, that's why you're giving patients instructions to their family members to try to reduce their exposure. Because we know that it may be more than 100, 100 millirem um, over the course of the isotope in their body, so we give them some instructions. Now, for the non-occupation dose limits, we'll calculate the exposure to the general public. We make sure it's going to be less than 500 because that's that infrequent, uh, and then we're going to give instructions to make sure it gets to below 100. Uh, and that's why you're giving instructions out to patients. Now, the bizarre part here is that your uh, radiation dose that you're giving to your patient and that that patient is now exposing to the rest of their family, um, it's actually a very, very low number. If you go to some labs, they may give patients no instructions at all. Uh, you may go to a lab next door that could give patients significant instructions. The example I like to give is um, I had a, f uh, a family friend over for dinner and he had a thiam stress test, actually it was a MIBI stress test, at one of the local institutions where I'm not the physicist and he wouldn't eat dinner with us at the table. He sat at the kitchen while we were in the dining room because he was told he couldn't be around people for 24 hours. My wife was pregnant at the time and well, you have to stay away from pregnant women and children for 24 hours, and that's what they said to him. Uh, and is that, is that a mandatory instruction? Absolutely not. Is it good Olara, as low as reasonably achievable? Sure it is, but they didn't explain it properly to him. The dose that he would have exposed people to was fractions, fractions of a milliram per hour, uh, but you know the, the facility wanted to give instructions to maintain that Olara principle, and that's okay. What we really wanna do is, we wanna see what the exposure is gonna to be to everyone around you and come up with a good set of instructions. If you have an iodine-131, say ablation therapy, we know that that's a high dose, you're gonna expose people to X amount of radiation and we have to give you a set of instructions and no matter where you go in the country, if you get 40 millicures of iodine-131, you're gonna get a very similar set of instructions. But if you go and get 30 millicuries of technetium 99M, the instructions are going to be all across the board because you haven't reached the threshold to give someone 500 millirem. 
uh, of exposure. And that's why you see all those inconsistencies in, in instructions. So I'm throwing it out there, um, not so much for the, the board exams, but more when you go back to your labs and you think about the instructions you're giving, you're already at very, very low doses to the general public from that person. So when you come up with your set of instructions, just think about that logically. Um, you don't have to say, you can't be around people. Let's try to avoid. Your dose to the people around you is minimal, however. And that's how you should start those conversations. Let's go into the occupational dose limits. Um, and these are numbers that you have to commit to memory. These will be asked multiple times. Occupational means you are a radiation worker, a known radiation worker. The whole body limit for an occupational worker per year is five rem, or 5,000 millirem, also 50 millisieverts or 0.05 sieverts. I gave you all those numbers there. But five rem is the, is the common number they throw out at you, and that is your annual limit. Um, I don't think I wrote the word annual there, but that's the annual limit. Uh, that's for the whole body. Your skin or an extremity has a dose limit of 50 rem or 50,000 millirem. So that's a really big difference. Um, if some of you are actually handling radioactive material, you may get a ring badge. So the ring badge number is that 50 rem. And that's what you want to realize is a shallow dose. You know, where in the skin do they calculate it? Well, they calculate it over a 0 0.00 cm deep um, depth in tissue over 10 square centimeters. Uh, and that's how they come up with that dose. Also, the lens to the eye for everyone working in the cath lab, 15 rem or 15,000 millirem. If you forget these numbers and you lose these slides somewhere along the line, if you've got a film badge report at your institution, just turn it over. The film badge reports have all the dose limits right on the back. These are numbers that you should definitely commit to memory. Uh, and that brings us into what happens if we have an occupational worker who's pregnant. Well, the interesting thing here is that the, the fetus, the unborn child, is not an occupational worker, where your nucleotech may be an occupational worker. So they actually bring that limit down to the, to the occupational worker to 500 millirem over the gestation period. Uh, so over the 10 months, um, it's going to be 500 millirem, and they make sure that you monitor the person and that they get no more than 50 millirem a month. And these are questions I've seen on exams ranging from nuclear and x-ray techs all the way up to physicians. Um, pregnancy dose limits is a pretty hot topic out there. So the pregnancy dose limit um, is 500 millirem over the entire gestation period. 50 millirem a month is what they monitor for. What happens when you have a pregnant worker? Well, you used to have, make that worker declare their pregnancy. I am pregnant, they'd put it in writing. You can't make them do that. The pregnant person is a patient. It's a HIPAA violation to force them to do something like that and disclose their condition. Um, so they, they can voluntarily declare it. I can tell you half the time I get a phone call, uh, probably before the husband gets the phone call, and um, we talk to them about it, we counsel them about it, and we let them know what their options are. Um, but you don't have to force someone to declare their pregnancy. Uh, however, it's nice to, when you do your annual radiation safety in services, to talk to them about what you would do if someone was pregnant. And what we want to do is modify the work condition if possible. Um, you don't have to take them out of the field. Remember, you're allowed to get 500 millirem over the gestation period. That doesn't mean you can say, all right, I'm a nucleotech, and now I have to go do files. Um, you know, we've had certainly plenty of, of nuclear cardiologists who went through their entire term pregnant, and they just modified their work a little bit. And how would they do that? 
Uh, maybe take two steps away from the treadmill during the stress test. Uh, maybe not be there for the injection phase of it. Uh, maybe during the recovery, the nurse will come in and monitor the recovery, and the physician can step out if you're the, if you're the pregnant one, or vice versa, if the nurse is pregnant, and share those responsibilities and do anything you can to reduce that exposure. But the key is to make sure that they're getting less than 500 millirem a year, and it's easy to do. Just look at the badge history already. Um, and see what kind of exposure they're getting and make those modifications. Um, so we're gonna monitor to make sure that we don't exceed these limits. And that's why you don't give them a badge and leave it on them for the, for the, for the entire gestation period. We're gonna look at it on a monthly basis and make sure we stay within the threshold. So it's important for pregnant workers to know that they are allowed to work, but we do wanna modify that work if possible. Another little quiz here. Um, the average background radiation exposure is um, three to 400 millirem. Um, the largest source of background radiation is from radon. We spoke about that. That's about 55% of the radiation exposure from background is from radon. Um, a round trip flight from New York to LA is about five millirem. Don't usually see that on an exam, but it's a nice number to kind of keep in your head when you're comparing things. The non-occupational dose limit, 100 millirem. And remember, it is um, 500 millirem if it's due to a known procedure. Uh, and you're exposing the general public to a known procedure such as a family member. The whole body occupational dose limit is 5,000 millirem a year. Uh, you may see that as five rem a year. Uh, another number to keep in mind, occupational dose limit to the extremity, 50,000 millirem a year. And that's a pretty big number, and the question is why is that? You know, why can your hands get exposed to so much more radiation than the whole body? Well, one, whole body radiation is much worse for you because you're radiating a lot of tissue in one time, and we could talk about uh, radiobiology and, and breaking cells and DNA repairing, and whole body radiation is a, is a higher probability of a problem. Uh, and the other issue is th there's no vital organs in your extremities, um, so there's less likely to be a problem. So they increase that limit to 50,000 millirem or um, 50 rem per year. Pregnant worker dose limit, 500 millirem per gestation period. Often I see on exams, they just throw in another zero there to kind of trip you up. You see the five, you see the zero. So just be careful with that number. Uh, and when you monitor a pregnant worker, you may see a question like that instead of the 500, they may go a 50 millirem per month where they just broke it down. So just some numbers to get familiar with. 500 millirem over the entire gestation period, 50 millirem a month. Now that we talked about uh, exposure limits, we'll talk about how we monitor these people. Um, you're gonna have to monitor an occupational worker who's likely to get 500 millirem a year. What does that really mean? You don't have to monitor everybody in your lab. You only wanna monitor the people who are likely to get 10% of the dose limits. Remember the dose limits, 5,000 millirem a year, whole body. 10% is 500, so you only wanna monitor people who are likely to get 10% of that. Or, people who handle radioactive materials. So most local health codes will say you have to monitor at 10% of the dose limits. That's in, the, that's in um, every state I've seen so far in their health code. But when you get a radioactive materials license, usually a license requirement is no matter what exposure they're gonna get, if you're handling millicurie amounts of radioactive material, you have to monitor them also. So not everyone in the lab has to be monitored. We wanna think about that, who we should monitor. What type of monitoring badges do we have out there? Well, there's film badges, that's a pretty old type. A thermoluminescent device, which are TLDs, optically stimulated luminescence, OSLs, and pocket ion chambers. Let's go over them. The film badge, um, this was the old type that you used to see. Um, it was in a plastic holder, and people would walk around with it on their lab coats. It was 
maybe a, a thick little device. This is a pretty common one that I saw. And what you had was a strip of film that was exposed to radiation and how much that film darkened or the density of that darkening was proportional to the radiation exposure. So they would process that film on a monthly or quarterly basis and they'd see, well, it was, a, it was a clear film to start, we develop it, I got some darkening on it, well, how much radiation was they exposed to? And they could quantify that. Um, and what they also did was they threw in on that strip right over here, there was generally um, a strip of plastic, lead, copper, aluminum, and what that told us was what type of radiation they were exposed to. Because we know that x-rays and gamma rays will penetrate lead, copper, plastic a certain way, but beta particles will behave differently. So we can start to assess the quality and the energy of the radiation through that. And, and when you got your film badge reports back, it would say low energy beta, high energy gamma, and that's how they did that through these filters where we assess the energy and the penetration power. The problem with film badges, they were very, very, very sensitive to heat. Uh, just like the films in a roll Kodak cameras. They were, uh, they were affected by heat, they're affected by moisture, they're affected by sunlight. Um, if you ever got back some kind of crazy report and the RSO would come up to you and say, did you leave your badge in your car? Was it you know, clipped to your stethoscope as it was hanging over the, the rear view mirror? And that's because the sunlight was hitting it and probably damaged that badge. So film badges are still out there. They're not the most common anymore. They definitely have the limitations. You also can't reuse a film badge. So in a green society, film isn't the great way to go. Um, then we had TLDs, which are still wearing today. Um, these are the ring badges. Very, very common. It uses a special crystal, a lithium fluoride. The way it worked, very simply, was the lithium fluoride would absorb energy and the electrons were elevated to a higher energy level where they were, and they became trapped in the forbidden band. Um, and the way we got them back down to their regular energy level was to heat them up, and they call that an annealing process. And we use heat, we release the electron back down. As it released um, from the forbidden band, they came back down to its ground state it released energy in the form of light. They just take a photomultiplier tube, stuck it right in that annealing heat process, and we measured the light coming out, and then we could see how much radiation. The radiation exposure was proportional to the light emitted. Um, the great thing about these, uh, where the crystals are very small, and once you reheat them, and you get it back down to ground state, you could use the badge again. So it's a renewable process, which is very nice. Um, and so ring badges are really good. Uh, they're, they're really pretty accurate. Um, they do have their limitations. Um, they don't really read a super low dose. Probably in your ring badges, the minimum number, if you look at your film badge reports or your dosimetry reports, 30 millirem is generally the lowest number they're going to record. You generally don't see ring badges with numbers of 5 and 10 millirem. And that's why uh, at the end of the year you may see that, well, I got, um, you know, 200 millirem of whole body exposure on my whole body badge, but my ring badge shows an M, meaning minimal. Well, that's because you never hit that threshold each month along the way. So it never got that minimum dose. But it's expected that if you're wearing a ring badge, you're handling radioactive materials, you're going to get more than 30 millirem a month to your hands, and that's why they're still okay and they're commonly used. The more common one out there is something called OSL, or optically stimulated luminescence, and, and the common brand there is Luxo. Landauer makes it, other, other companies make it as well. I was only able to find a picture of the Landauer badge, and that's one that I see at most facilities now. So it's not filming there anymore. The Luxo badge has a sheet of radio-sensitive aluminum oxide, uh, and they seal that in a light and moisture-proof packet. When the atoms in aluminum oxide are exposed to radiation, again, the electrons are elevated into an excited state. And in order to get them back down 
Instead of heating them up, we hit them with a laser beam, and that's the optically stimulated. Uh, we hit them with a laser beam, and then they will light up, or the luminescence, and then we, we know that the light emitted is proportional, is proportional to the radiation dose that was absorbed. Um, these are great. They're very sensitive. They get down to one millirem of exposure. They are reusable, just like TLDs. And again, we could use filters in these to see across that aluminum oxide strip what type of radiation, what the penetration power, and, and, and things like that. And this is a very, very good whole body monitor. This is the most common badge out there now. So something to take out of this, these, these slides are the different type of badges out there. You've got your film badge, you've got your TLD, which is the thermoluminescent badge, and your OSLs. Something that you probably don't see anymore is the pocket ion chamber, but you, you may have them if you open up an old draw in the nuclear medicine lab. And that's a pen-like gas chamber. It collects radiation, um, and the way it really worked was pretty simple. Here, there was a wire inside of here, and these were gas-filled. As the radiation hits the, the side wall here, electrons are released and ion pairs are created, and, and we've got a charged wire here that collects the ions. Uh, and it was just proportional to ion collection to what the radiation dose was. What was the problem with this? You had to reset it after every time you used it, so not good for accumulation exposure. They were leaky, meaning it collected, um, it collected charges just sitting there doing nothing. Um, it was very good if you've got a visitor and you want to assess their exposure um, just for the day. You've got a nurse working with a radioactive patient who's concerned. You can put that on her for the day. You generally don't use these for more than a day because they're not the most accurate things in the world, but it will give you a decent assessment after a day's use. The other problem is there's no permanent record of dose. And these days, we, you know, we have to maintain everyone's occupational exposure indefinitely. So you'd have to maintain that record and file it away forever. So they're out there still. They're decent for short-term exposure. Um, uh, either on 131 patients, give it to the nurse working on them. You've got a visiting cardiologist doing some stress tests. You want to know what their exposure is. You don't have time to get them a badge. You can throw one of these on them, just write down the exposure at the end of the day, and then reset it. But the question is how often do you have to be monitored? Some facilities will monitor people and exchange those badges every month. Some do it every quarterly. It's the license that will dictate those requirements. Most generally in nuclear medicine, it's monthly. Um, in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, it's monthly. In other states I've looked at, it's monthly for nuclear medicine exposure, whereas x-ray exposure, you can change that frequency. But that's something you want to check with your local Department of Health. Which brings us to, we've, we've got an exposure, we're assessing our exposure, let's talk about how we reduce that exposure. The Alara principle is something we've all heard forever since we've gotten involved in radiation. Alara stands for as low as reasonably achievable. And what does that really mean? It means we don't want to get our dose limit, we want to get less than 10% of the dose limit. That's what we strive for. It's not going to happen. It will happen in most labs. It's not going to happen if you're doing cardiac cath, and it's not going to happen if you're doing uh, really PET scanning. Uh, it's tough because you just are exposed to that amount of radiation, but that's what we strive for, and that's where we build in our radiation protection programs. So 10% of the limit, the limit is 5,000 millirem a year. The Alara principle says, let's try to set up a program to get people to 500 millirem a year. And how do we do that? Through some basic tools. Time, distance, and shielding. Time. Straightforward, let's reduce our time around the radiation source. Um, if you've got an exposure out there of 10 millirankin per hour, remember it's exposure in air, 10 millirankin per hour, if you're only around them for 15 minutes, it's 2.5 MR. Uh, this comes into play when you've got patients hanging out in the waiting room 
um, and you've got staff near those patients all day long, um, that's something to think about. Well, how, how, can we, how can we change that? Well, I can't reduce their time. The patients are here, the staff is here, they're being exposed. Is there something else I can do? Well, you know, maybe I can use distance. Um, maybe I can get the staff a little further away from that patient. Uh, so there's another tool in the arsenal is, is increasing your distance, and we call that the inverse square law. Uh, you always want to stay as far away from a radiation source as possible. Inverse square law works pretty simply. Um, as you got a radiation source, as it is, the photons fly through the air, the same amount of photons are covering a larger area, so a person in that area is being exposed to less photons. It's equivalent to what I did the other day to my son when I took the hose and I shot him right in the stomach with the water, um, and then I moved back about 10 feet and I shot him again to show him that as you're further away, the same amount of water is coming out of the nozzle, but you're being hit by less. So when you're in a water fight, get away from me. Uh, and, and he learned that pretty quickly, and I taught him the inverse square law while we were at it. Um, and the inverse square law works, if you ever had to do the calculation, it's the intensity of that dose, of that exposure, divided by the distance squared, meaning it's the inverse square law. So however far away you are, square that number and then divide it, and that's gonna be the new exposure. So the inverse square law is really one of your best friends in radiation safety. Um, reduce your time around that patient and source if you can, but in your world, you really can't do that too much, right? You're in there during the stress test, you're monitoring the patients, you're in there at the cath lab, you're doing what you can do, you're working with the patient, but distance is something you can always do. Um, you've got a patient on the treadmill, they've been injected, take a step back. One step is your best friend and that's gonna help you out a lot. I know a lot of the labs are really, really small, but we do the best we can and we try to get some distance there. And you'll see that if you take one step back and most people for one step is about a meter or a yard, um, that's a big difference, three feet. That's a big difference and will really reduce that radiation exposure. Here's a little example for the inverse square law. 100 MR per hour at one meter, well if you go to two meters, it's only 25 MR per hour. You go to three meters, it's only 11 MR per hour. Three meters is three steps backwards. That's not bad. You can monitor a patient from three meters away. You can still look at the, at the EKG. You could still be monitoring that patient from a bit of a distance. If you think nine feet is too much, we'll make it six feet. Let's do something to reduce that exposure. But for the boards, you really want to know that formula. The intensity of that radiation, you would divide it by the distance squared. So if they gave you a distance, and they would give it to you just as I gave this equation here, 100 MR per hour at one meter is how much radiation exposure at two meters? Two squared, 100, by, 100 divided by two squared, and there you go. Um, so something you want to get familiar with is the inverse square law. The other way you can protect yourself is shielding. Shielding in nuclear medicine is kind of tough to do because the patients are a mobile source. You can't really follow them around in, in, in a lead wall, but there are things that we can do. Things to think about um, when it comes to shielding is what kind of radiation are we dealing with? Alpha particles, remember if we go back to those earlier slides and we talked about have a very, very high lead or linear, linear energy transfer, high relative biological effect in this, well because they give up all their energy in a very, very, very short path length, you don't need a lot of material to absorb them or attenuate them. So a sheet of paper stops alpha particles. Um, a glass vial stops alpha particles. Uh, so alpha particles, although very, very damaging, very easy to protect from. Um, if you just take a few, a few inches away from it, you're not gonna be exposed to it. 
Um, beta particles, however, do travel a little bit longer. They don't give up their energy so fast, uh, but you could stop a beta particle by layers of clothing, usually less than an inch of a substance. I mentioned plastic there because um, beta particles love to interact with high Z materials. High Z meaning a high atomic number, plastic has a low atomic number. So when we shield for beta particles, we use plastic, we use lucite. I don't know if a lot of, a lot of you guys are involved in beta administrations, it's more of a nuclear medicine therapy thing, but the syringe shield that you have in your labs is usually this lead shield with a, with a lead-lined, uh, leaded glass in it. If you're doing it with a beta particle, it's generally a plastic shield. Uh, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about you know, the energy deposited from a beta, but it only takes a little bit of plastic to help out. Gamma rays, on the other hand, uh, they don't give up their energy so fast, uh, and, they, and they definitely travel longer. So gamma rays um, are attenuated by inches to feet of concrete, less than an inch of a lead, um, you know, fractions of an inch. When, when I talk about lead lining, waiting rooms, or dealing with crosstalk issues, I put usually a sixteenth of an inch of lead in a wall, and that's really all it takes to knock those gamma rays out. Uh, here, um, some basic shielding products, uh, lead bricks that we have in our lab. Uh, these are really over an inch thick. So these are great for the lead cave where you're gonna store your doses. Um, lead aprons, very, very common. Uh, lead aprons not often used in the nuclear cardiology arena and that's because if you look at the tag that's generally inside one of these arms here, it talks about how much lead there really is in there. Um, and in nuclear medicine, the half value layers are much higher and we'll talk about half value layer. Uh, than in diagnostic x-ray, and these aprons are generally made for fluoroscopy use or x-ray use, um, and they don't commonly use them in x-ray and nuclear medicine because they don't protect you as much as you think they are, where time and distance are gonna do a really good job for you. Here we have the syringe shield and the basic L-block shield. So these are, other than these aprons, um, if you're doing nuclear cardiology, you should have all of these in your lab. Um, so let's make sure we have them, and the L-block is great for your nuclear medicine protection uh, for preparing doses. We mentioned the shielding, we have to talk about a term that you may be responsible called half value layer. The half value layer is the amount of material needed to reduce the intensity of a radiation beam by one half. Half value layer. Um, so was the half value layer, and normally it's in lead, we talk about half value layers in lead, uh, for technetium 99M, meaning how much lead you need to put into a technetium 99M radiation beam to knock it in half, 0 0.03 centimeters. That's a good number to memorize. Um, that's a pretty common half value layer out there. Technetium is, is, our, is our main world. And we wanna get to know that point, point zero 0.03 centimeters or 0.3 millimeters. Um, that's half value layer in lead. Also F18, to, to see the difference, when you do a PET scanning, look at the half value layer. It's 0.4 centimeters. It's almost half a centimeter in lead, which is why when you're putting in PET facilities, the cost is significantly higher for shielding those walls, where in technetium areas, I may put in a 16th or a 32nd inch of lead. Um, common in PET scanning rooms, I'm putting in a quarter to a half inch of lead. Uh, and that's because the half value layer is so much higher. It's a 511 keV photon. It takes a lot more lead to knock that down. Cesium-137, I threw that in there because that's a common isotope you guys all have. You've got cesium-137 vials as a reference source for your dose calibrators, and they're in their own lead container, and the half value layer there is 0.6 centimeters. So there's definitely some exposure coming off of those sealed sources. 
If you wanted to do uh, an equation, um, I've given you the formula here, uh, and the speaker before had mentioned the 0.693, which is the natural log uh, of two there, but here we've got the, the formula for you. I don't think you could use calculators on the exams. I don't think they would give you um, the opportunity to have to calculate that, because you have to take the natural log, but if you want to practice it at home, I certainly encourage it. How much would one millimeter of lead reduce the exposure from 10 MR per hour of technetium? Um, so let's take a look at that. I, I worked the math out through for you, 10 MR per hour um, times e to the minus 0.693 T, which is the thickness over the half value layer, and it turns out that it knocked it down to one MR per hour. Um, I did that formula on purpose because I wanted to show you another term called the tenth value layer. Tenth value layer is another term you may be responsible for. The tenth value layer is the amount of material um, to knock the beam down by one tenth. So if you take a look at the tenth value layer for technetium 99M, um, in the previous slide I had said it was one millimeter. Uh, remember the half value layer was about 0.3 millimeters. So the tenth value layer is 3.3 half value layers if you ever broke down and did the math. Um, so another term you may see out there is half value layer and tenth value layer. Um, and you may want to just be familiar with the equation. Um, exposure, the, the final exposure is going to be your original exposure, e to the minus 0.693 times the thickness we're talking about divided by the half value layer. Um, the most important thing to think about here is when you're doing any of this math is to make sure the units are the same. Um, you can't say, you know, 0.1 centimeters um, divided by 0.3 millimeters. You have to be in the same units or it just isn't going to work out for you. So when we're talking about radiation exposure and radiation protection, you have to talk about at what point are we going to do something about it. And every health code out there has something called Alara investigation levels. Uh, and these are things you want to be familiar with, especially if you're going to be a radiation safety officer. When you're talking about Alara investigation levels, you want to talk about at what point am I going to take some kind of action? At what point are these red flags going to go up there? And if any of you or all of you are working in a cath lab, you're probably getting Alara notification letters on a, on a somewhat routine basis. And what does that really mean? Well, the exposure limit is 5,000 millirem a year whole body. That doesn't mean when you get to 5,000 you want to be notified, hey, you got 5,000, we're going to cancel your patients for the rest of the year. You want to know how am I doing along the way. So quarterly they set up these red flags. The whole body Alara level, um, the first flag they set up is called an Alara level 1, Roman numeral 1, which is 125 millirem per quarter. Well, if you multiply that out, 125 per quarter is going to come up to be 500 millirem a year. And that's 10% of the dose limits. And that's the point where you need to be monitored. 500 millirem a year is also the point where uh, the total exposure for a pregnant worker. So the numbers all kind of come together and they try to keep the numbers pretty uniform. So an Alara level one is 125 millirem per quarter. And what you want to do if you get an Alara level one is just let the person know, hey, you're in a radiation area, you're getting an exposure, you're likely to receive more than 10% of the dose limits, Let's start thinking about radiation protection here. It doesn't mean you have to stop working. It just means let's open up our eyes. Let's take a look around. Let's see what's going on. Why do I, I, I think these numbers are important? Obviously, from a radiation safety point of view, you're going to want to know, you know why you're being notified. But also from a board exam point of view, 125 millirem per quarter is the common Alara level one notification. 
and that's for the whole body. Notice for the extremity, 1,875, 1875 milliram per quarter, the number goes up simply because your dose limits are higher. Um, and for the skin, they do knock it down a little bit, 750 milliram per quarter. So these are alar level one investigation levels, and at that point, all you gotta do is notify the employee, hey, you got alar level one, just letting you know. And I'm sure many of you have received those letters before, and all you did was get a letter, and you say, what do I do with it? Well, just know you're working in a radiation field which you knew already, but we do have to inform you. The alar level two, however, is a little bit different. And for the whole body, an alar level two notification means, hey, you're getting a radiation exposure. You're gonna get more than 30% of the dose limits. What's going on here? Let's investigate this. Let's take some action so we never hit the dose limit. And that's why they do these quarterly investigations. And that's why an RSO or a physicist is looking at your badge reports on a monthly and quarterly basis to make sure that you're never gonna hit your dose limits. Because as a working occupational worker, you're not gonna wanna get that phone call, hey, it's June, you're done. Um, so we're gonna investigate on a quarterly level and let's make sure, and often that happens. We had facilities recently where there was a doctor who was getting a much higher number than all the other doctors. We took a look at the procedures and we realized um, he was in a room that didn't have the pull-down shield for the cath. So we got him a pull-down shield and he's pulled it down and now he's getting pretty good numbers. So we wanna take a look at why. Why are you getting 375 millirem a quarter? And we're gonna have to take a look and see and we're gonna take some action. Um, from a, from a compliance point of view, it's a requirement. It, it's not like we're doing anyone a favor. If you're gonna get more than 375 milliram a quarter your whole body, we have to investigate it, we have to document that investigation, and we gotta take some action on it. Brings us to just some thought-provoking questions. Um, at what point do we need to monitor personnel? And the answer there is, if your annual exposure is likely to exceed 500 milliram and or you're handling radioactive materials. Uh, some states do say millicurie amounts of radioactive materials, other states leave the millicurie out of it. So if you're handling radioactive materials, it's good to be monitored. In nuclear medicine, nuclear cardiology departments, personal monitors should be evaluated how often because it's radioactive materials and there are potentials for spills, we go with monthly. Common monitors in nuclear medicine, nuclear cardiology are, well, you'll see them all. You'll see film badge, you'll see TLDs, which are gonna be on the rings, and OSLs are whole body badges. Some facilities still have film badges. They are quite inexpensive, and, and these days with cost cutting, people are going back to film badges. Um, so you'll still see them out there. Uh, principal rules of Olara. Um, these used to be golden questions. You could still see it again. You gotta remember, it's time distance shielding. Reduce your time, increase your distance shield whenever you can. 100 MR per hour measured at one meter would be what at two meters, that's the inverse square law, uh, 25 MR per hour. Assuming the half ALA of Technique Smithian is 0.3 millimeters in lead, remember 0.03 centimeters or 0.3 millimeters, how much would you need to reduce the exposure from 10 MR to five MR? Um, here is a question I would expect to see on an exam because you don't have to break out the calculator. When they're gonna talk about half-value layers, they're gonna talk about it in terms of easy math. What can you do in your head? So here, they went from 10 MR per hour, 10 MR to five MR. You think, how many half-value layers do I need? I need one half-value layer, it's 0.3 millimeters. They may say, well, how much, how much technetium, how much lead do you need to knock uh, technetium from 10 MR per hour to, say, 2.5? and I need two half value layers. So think in terms of that, they're not gonna make you do natural logs in your head, uh, but they will make you do multiples of a half value layer, so consider that one. 
That brings us to radiation survey equipment, uh, which Lindsay did touch on. Um, here are some basic meters that you're going to see in your laboratories. Uh, the GM meter. Um, here we have a GM meter with a pancake probe attachment. That is the most wide, widely accepted attachment that you want to use. Um, here we've got a scaler which controls the well counter for doing wipe tests. And let's talk about each of these instruments. The survey instrument, um, the Geiger-Muller or the GM meter, you want to calibrate that annually. And that's something that you'll often be asked to, to know about how often you should be calibrating a Geiger counter. The answer is annually and you have to calibrate it with a National Institutes of Standards and Technology source um, such as cesium-137. So when you send these out to accredited labs, they're going to use standard sources, well-known reference sources. Um, the other question is how often do I need to check these things? You should check them each day you use them um, and you're going to check it with a long-lived isotope such as cesium-137 and a lot of your GM meters you may see a source stuck to the side window here. Um, and that's the cesium source. Uh, about the size of a quarter, it's usually yellow or red, and you may see it inside a little door with a hinge, um, and you have that. Otherwise, your, your, your tech probably has a small spot source behind their L-blocking cave, and they could check their Geiger counter to make sure it's working properly every day. But it's an annual calibration. Your, your other survey equipment in your lab is the scalar and well counter. Um, these are used um, in conjunction with each other for your wipe tests. You're doing wipe tests on packages as they're coming in and going out. You're doing wipe tests weekly in your lab and weekly is the requirement to do wipe testing. So you're doing daily area surveys with the Geiger counter and you also have to do a weekly wipe test meaning you have to actually wipe areas of the lab looking for removable contamination. And that's the key word there. Wipe tests are for removable contamination. Um, and here you want to do an annual efficiency check to make sure the unit is working properly and the tech is going to do a daily check on their own. Usually efficiency check is done by the physicist. So here is the, the well itself where you throw the wipe sample in it and it's got four pi geometry here and this is the driver of it. This is the, the driving device. There are new computerized units which really, really work well. Now we use surveys uh, and we check for contamination using a GM meter. Uh, we're going to run around your lab and you're going to check all the areas of your lab. You probably will have a map of 10 to 20 areas in a room to check for contamination, areas where you're likely to have spills. When you do your surveys, you're going to want to make sure that you are less than one centimeter from the surface. Um, if you ever are having the pleasure of being there during the, the Department of Health inspection uh, and your tech is off as it always seems to happen, um, part of the, the surveyor's requirements is to watch a survey being done. Um, and I've seen them take the RSOs and say, show me how to do a survey. And the last time you touched the survey meter might have been in your residency. So it's important to break that survey meter out and play with it a little bit. And when you're doing a survey, you want to show the inspector that you're going to be as low as possible to the surface. If he asks you how low you're going to go, you say less than one centimeter. And how fast you're going to survey, you're not going to wave it around. It's as slow as humanly possible. And that's what they're looking for there. The most common exposure limits are 1 MR per hour for restricted area and 0.2 MR per hour for unrestricted areas. The 0.2 MR per hour for unrestricted areas is a New York State requirement. I've looked at multiple states and they all seem to have the same one but realized that I did pull that from a New York State requirement. The 1 MR per hour is a pretty common number also for restricted areas. What's a restricted area? What's an unrestricted area? Well, your treadmill room is definitely a restricted area. 
I think the doctor's office is an unrestricted area. Areas where you're not using radioactive materials should be unrestricted areas. Areas where you're using it should be restricted areas. But you determine that as the RSO and as your lab. You may deem this whole area a restricted area. It's up to you guys. We do wipe tests weekly for removable contamination. How do we do that? We use the well counter that we showed you. We don't wipe the entire floor. That would be impossible. You're going to wipe a 10 by 10 centimeter area. And that's why when you see the limits, you will see limits as 5,000 disintegrations per minute. And that's what, what you got from your well counter. You got a count. You used an efficiency. Uh, got that into a disintegration per minute. And it's per 100 cm squared or a 10 by 10 centimeter squared. Um, and that's important that it's not the entire area, it's of a specific area within your lab. Um, and the limit commonly for unrestricted areas is 200 dpm. 5,000 is an NRC number. Um, some states want you to go lower. Uh, New York does 2,000 for, um, for, for areas and 1,000 for what they call a clean area versus an unclean area. But 5,000 is your NRC limit. Survey limits may vary by state, so it's important to get familiar with your state limits wherever you are working. Now you've done your surveys, did we have a spill? Major and minor spills is always um, a thought. What's the difference between a major and a minor spill? Um, 10 millicuries is the common accepted for major and minor spills. Most licenses in the states will allow you to make 30 millicuries the limit if it's a technetium 99M product because the half-life is so short. So the common major minor spill differentiation is 10 millicuries. They do allow you to go to 30 millicuries in your policy and procedure manual if it's a technetium product, but you'd have to document that. What do you do for a minor spill? You're going to notify everyone in the area that a spill has occurred. You're going to prevent the... the um, you're going to prevent the spread of the spill from, from getting outside of that restricted area by covering it with a chuck or absorbent paper. You're going to clean it using gloves, tongs. Remote handling techniques is the, is, the, um, is the buzzword there. You're always going to clean from outside to in. I know that seems pretty silly, but when you start cleaning a spill this way, all you did was spread the spill. Um, and you can get a spill cleaned up pretty darn quick if you go outside to in. It... it um, it's a little annoying and you kind of forget because that's not how you're used to waxing on and waxing off, but um, it is the way to prevent the spread of the spill. And you're going to survey. You're going to survey, you're going to check the spill, you're going to check the personnel, you're going to report it to the RSO. That's a minor spill. That's less than 10 millicuries of an isotope. If you're doing technetium, remember, you are allowed to increase your policy to 30 millicuries at this differentiation. What about a major spill? Immediately, you're going to clear the area. Everyone gets out of the room if there's a major spill. And that's the major difference between a major and a minor spill. Remember, in a minor spill, we started, we, we covered it up with the chuck, we started cleaning it, we're surveying personnel, we're letting the RSO know. But here you got a major spill, you are going to clear the area immediately. You don't know what you're dealing with. You know you're dealing with a larger quantity than you want to. You clear the area, and as you're walking out, you're going to throw a chuck on that to try to prevent the spill from... From, from, from the liquid from spreading away, um, and you're going to shield it if you can. Um, you can only shield it really if it's going to be done without significantly, can, um, if you're not going to contaminate something, you don't want to throw a, you know, just a lead apron right on top of, of, a, 
of a whole puddle of technetium. Um, cover it with absorbent paper first, throw some plastic on it, then throw a lead apron on it if you want to. Um, and then you're gonna wanna close that room and lock it from, from entry. Uh, make sure that no one can get in there. You, don't want, you wanna make sure that the, the environmental services department isn't gonna clean that area and now contaminate all their mops. You're gonna notify the RSO. Then and only then, after you've vacated the room, you've closed down that room, you've notified the RSO, at that point you're gonna start making decisions about cleanup. Uh, and then you're gonna clean up. You could use Radiac Wash, which is great, it's a good chelating agent, mild soap, lukewarm water. Just get it up. I always found that the surgical sponges work best for cleaning up spills. Um, they're also awesome for getting underneath your fingernails and in your cuticles when you forgot to wear gloves and you spilled on your hands. Um, so they work really well also. Uh, and you're gonna do the cleanup under the RSO supervision. So the major and minor spill, there are differences. If there's a major spill, you wanna stop what you're doing, you wanna think about it, you wanna get the RSO involved, and then you're gonna start the cleanup if it's not gonna significantly expose anybody. Um, you may find that you got a major spill, you lock the room, you take your serving meter out and there's no exposure outside the room, which is most likely the case uh, because the rooms are at least, you know, eight by eight, six by six, 10 by 10. So distance itself outside the room is down to background. You may just want to lock that room up uh, for the weekend and call it a day. Come back a few days later and let it decay and let the natural laws of physics help you out. So there are different ways you can attack that spill. Once you have a spill, you may have some waste generated. You're also generating waste um, just from your daily routine. We have to talk about how we're going to manage that waste. Um, there are a few ways we can do it. We can decay that waste in storage. We can transfer that waste to someone else. We could dispose it in the sewer. We can incinerate it into the atmosphere. I don't recommend options three and four. Um, decay and storage. Um, most states have, um, have limits that you can only decay waste with half-lives of less than 120 days. I don't think you're using any isotopes with a half-life of more than 120 days. The only thing that's probably more than that are your sealed sources which you return to the vendor anyway. Um, you're gonna wanna decay that waste in a shielded container. You're gonna label that container with the date of the longest lived isotope. If you're dealing with technetium and thallium, you're gonna put down the half-life of thallium and you're gonna write down, or don't write, write the half-life, just write it's thallium 201 and know that you need to wait 10 half-lives for the longest held isotope. That's why a lot of labs will split their waste up. Technetium container, thallium container. Um, and you're gonna hold everything for 10 half-lives. For technetium, 60 hours. For thallium, it's got a half-life of, what, three days, so hold on to it for a month. You're gonna survey to ensure that it's indistinguishable from background, and you're gonna record the survey in the log. And hopefully, you're gonna write down background, you're gonna write the survey of that package, of that bag, it's gonna be background also, and it's been 10 half-lives, away it goes. It's important that waste is held for a minimum of 10 half-lives, and indistinguishable from background. And those are the two answers. Indistinguishable from background and 10 half-lives. You can also transfer that to an authorized recipient. Spent doses may be returned to the vendor, and you probably do that all the time. Um, unused doses may also go back to the vendor, but there's a couple caveats to that I'm gonna get into. So if you have doses that you injected into a patient, put it back in a pig, put it back in the container, and the vendor may come and pick that up the next day when they drop off your new doses. That's a great way to get rid of syringes. 
The problem is, is that you just can't send back all amounts of radiation on your own. Um, and when you are sending these packages back to the vendor, you want to make sure that the package survey is less than 0.5 mR per hour, not a big deal. You also want to make sure that it's less than 6600 dpm per 300 square centimeters of contamination. Notice the difference in the number of 300 square centimeters. That's because you're wiping the entire package when you send it back. The problem is, is that the way you're sending doses back, unless you're an authorized shipper of radioactive materials um, of certain quantities and you have that training, you can only send back 11 millicuries of technetium or 11 millicuries of thallium in the package. So be careful with your spent doses. You don't want to just send them back say, all right, I want to get a credit for all these things, you may, you may exceed your package limits. Um, if you're sending it back the next day, the technetium is going to decay. That's not a big deal. But five doses of thallium may, may be a problem for you. Um, and then you're going to label that package limited quantity accepted package. Uh, and normally, the radioactive package comes in. You've got a label on it, radioactive 1, radioactive 2. You flip it over, and they generally have that symbol for you. Limited quantity accepted package. Realize that doesn't mean that the package is empty. It means that you're a low quantity. You're less than 0.5 mR per hour on the surface, less than 6600 deep per 300 square centimeters of contamination, and less than 11 millicuries total in that package. You could also transfer that when you transfer it to an authorized recipient. Um, your waste can also be picked up by a vendor. It's very, very expensive, um, and there's a lot of DET regulations you got to deal with when doing that, although some facilities do do that. They do send their waste out to people to decay uh, for them. Um, just make sure that you follow your DET regs because you become a shipper of radioactive material. It is the expensive way to go, especially when we're dealing with such short half-lives. You don't really need to do that. You could dump the stuff down the sewer if you've got some liquid waste. Um, the problem with that is there are concentration limits, meaning you're only allowed to expose X amount of technetium per milliliter of water in a month. Uh, so you'd have to bring someone in to do that calculation for you and say, well, I'm dumping 30 millicuries a day. Let me do the math. Okay, I'm all right at it. Um, is it highly recommended? No, but it is nice to know that that is a way to dispose of waste. Some laboratories dispose of waste that way. Uh, laboratories doing uh, T3, T4 um, evaluations in blood, shilling tests, which aren't commonly done anymore. Um, a lot of them would dump them down the sewer system, but you got to do calculations to make sure that you're not exceeding your radioactive material uh, limits. Um, so ca calculations have to be performed that have to be maintained for DOH review. You could also release the stuff into the atmosphere. This pertains to gases and aerosols. Um, I know it's not done in nuclear cardiology, but in nuclear medicine, they do these uh, lung ventilation scans and perfusion scans where there is an atmospheric release of gases. So we have to do calculations to make sure we're within DEC limits. Um, you know, if you're using xenon, you generally trap it in a, in a, in a, in a closed system, but DTPA aerosol, which they're breathing in, goes into the atmosphere, so we have to do calculations. And you're, at that point, you're disposing it in the atmosphere. So we need to make sure we don't exceed uh, DEC limits there. When we're ordering these doses, we want to make sure that uh, the doses are authorized by the RSO slash authorized user. Um, in a lot of the private labs, the RSO is a user. Hospitals generally a physicist is the RSO. So you want to make sure that uh, if the physicist is the RSO, they can't approve your doses in your patients. An authorized user on the license has to. And that's why you guys have radioactive materials licenses and why you're authorized users. Because the authorized user means you're allowed to order radiation doses into a person and interpret the results. When you're ordering these doses, you want to make sure that there is some type of standard dose range that you're dealing with in diagnostic imaging. You may have a protocol posted, and that's fine. Um, if you're something with outside your, your written 
protocol range, you have to have a written directive as to why. And if you're dealing with therapeutics, you must have a written prescription. It used to be years ago, all doses had a written prescription. A 30 millicurious technetium 99 amibi. Uh, I don't think anyone's writing those, those scripts anymore, and that's because the DOHs have accepted standard dose protocols, but once you fall outside your documented protocol, you need to document a written directive why. When you're receiving doses, and this is a, uh, a question that we'll get into, um, you can receive doses during normal business hours and they go right to the hot lab, that's great. Off hours, you generally escorted, uh, the person is escorted by security to the hot lab. The Joint Commission loves that one. They wanna make sure that the pharmaceutical vendors don't just go to your hot labs. They should be escorted by security. Um, some facilities have security take the doses if they've got no radiation safety in service. Um, or you could give a key to the, to, uh, to the facility, to the radiopharmaceutical vendors. Um, that's frowned upon by the Joint Commission, but in private facilities, that's often the case. Um, let me go back for a second here, sorry about that. Um, Off-hour deliveries, um, if you are receiving a dose off hours, you need to make sure that dose is checked into your hot lab within three hours of business. So that's the question I saw on exam recently. So within three hours of, of business, if you did get a dose, say delivered at four in the morning, you guys get there at seven, please make sure by 10 that dose has been checked into your hot lab. So they give you three hours to get that dose in. DOT labels, when you are receiving and sending out doses, you need to be familiar with the labels a little bit. So you can have radioactive labels that you have to be familiar with. The lowest one that you're gonna deal with is called the accepted package limited quantity. That's a very, very low number. Remember, we spoke about that before with your return packages. That means that the surface exposure in the package is less than 0.5 mR per hour. Your wipe tests are showing less than 6,600 6, DPM per 300 square centimeters of contamination. That's a lot of contamination. Um, I'd like it if it was background or consistent with background contamination, why contaminate? But there is a limit there, so you do have some, some room. Um, and notice that there are limits of what can be in that package. Thium, 11 millicuries. Um, technetium, 11 millicuries. If the package is more than one isotope, the maximum quantity defaults to the lower. So if you've got, say, um, strontium-89 and thium, you can't exceed 1.6 millicuries total. It's not 1.6 of strontium and 11 of thium, it's the total quantity in the package. So that's an accepted package limited quantity. That's the lowest type of package being shipped. The next package you have is a radioactive one white. And you probably see this on your, on your deliveries all the time with a little Roman numeral one. That means that the surface exposure was less than 0.5 mR per hour. At one meter, you couldn't detect anything uh, more than background. Uh, but there is a difference between the radioactive one white and the accepted package limited quantity. And that difference was uh, the package limits. You exceeded those 11 millicuries of technetium. So you had to step it up to a radioactive one package. So when your doses came in in the morning, it was probably less than 0.5 mile, 5 mile per hour on the surface, but there was more than 11 millicuries in it, which gave it a radioactive one. Um, and so the important thing to note here on these package limits, surface exposure less than 0.5 mile per hour, one meter not detectable. Radioactive two level is the next step up. Here, your surface exposure went from 0.5 all the way up to 50. That's a pretty big number. It's a pretty wide range, and at one meter, you can get up to uh, one MR per hour. So these are limits that I think you should be a little familiar with. Uh, definitely take a review of those slides to know what the limits are for radioactive one and radioactive two. Um, and the two, they call it a two-type yellow. The radioactive three is even higher. Surface exposure less than 200 MR per hour, at one meter less than 10 MR per hour. You don't normally see a radioactive three come in unless you're dealing with, with generators. If you have a technetium moly generator, you may see a radioactive three on that one, but most facilities are using unit doses now. 
When you are receiving a package, I noted that you had to get it within three hours of start of business if they delivered it early. You want to wear your gloves, you want to inspect it for problems, and you want to make sure that um, at one meter is where you always want to check it first. Remember, the radioactive two limit was 10 mR per hour at a meter. So if you're getting more than 10 mR per hour at a meter, you want to think twice about opening up that package. You want to do wipe tests only if you suspect contamination. So it's not required to wipe test packages coming in. If you suspect contamination, you must, you must wipe it. You can open up the outer package, remove the packing slip, open up the inner package, make sure you got what you think you got, check the integrity of the container and wipe it if you think. And then it's important that if everything's okay, um, you want to deface those labels. It's important not to throw away radioactive labels because that just gets the sanitation department in an uproar. Um, and always remember when you're handling the stuff to wear gloves. Um, I think you're going to have another lecture on measuring activity. I did throw some slides in here about that. Um, when you do get your doses in, you want to make sure you measure activity prior to administering it to patients. Um, some states do allow you to not have to use a dose calibrator. You can use the, pharma the pharmacy's calibration, and then you decay it by hand as to what it is at the time you injected. And you want to make sure that the activity you give to the patient is within 10% of what you want it to be. So administered activity must be within 10% of the prescribed activity. And it's important to maintain a record of that patient dose. Um, since you are using a dose calibrator, there are some QC you need to do on that. You can do some annual accuracy on that dose calibrator, which is a test with a, with a standard, um, a known standard, cobalt and cesium are the commons, barium is also used, and you'd want to do some linearity tests. Some states require semi-annual, some states require quarterly, um, I believe the iCanal requires quarterly. Um, so most people I know are doing a quarter-linearity test, and that's where you're assaying a source from a high level to a low level to make sure that it is linear. And you, the techs are doing a daily dose constancy. Um, you can measure accuracy, uh, you can measure activity by a few ways. One is by calculation. Uh, the unit dose is measured by the pharmacy. They told you what the number was at 8 o'clock. You can use the decay form to figure out what it was at 12 o'clock. And it's actually the same exact formula as the half value formula. So where T was time, where T was thickness, now T is just time, and it's the exact same formula. So instead of half value layer, we're talking about a half life. Gave you a little one if you wanted to play with it. What's the activity of technetium at noon? Um, if it was calibrated 30 millicuries at 10 a.m. So the time elapsed was two hours. We know the half life is 6.02 hours, and here's the formula: uh, e to the minus 0.693 times two hours divided by the half life comes up to 30 millicuries times 0.79, 23 millicuries. It is important to get familiar with the safe use of radioactive materials. Um, and this is, I used New York State's Radiation Guide 10.1 Revision 2, but that was an exact copy of the NRC guides. Um, one is wearing a lab coat or protective clothing when in a radioactive material area. Oftentimes we see people in street clothes. Not the best thing in the world because if you spill in your street clothes, what are you going to do? Um, so you should provide them with lab coats or other protective clothing. Some facilities will just have, um, have the staff wear scrubs and have an extra pair of scrubs nearby if needed. You're always going to wear gloves when handling radioactive material. You want to monitor your hands for contamination after each procedure and before leaving the material area. Some facilities just have a Geiger counter on all the time in a corner. They check it. Some facilities just turn it on after the procedure, but before they leave the area, you want to make sure you're not going to spread some kind of contamination. Um, always use syringe shields when preparing doses. Don't eat, drink, smoke, apply cosmetics in the radioactive material areas. You want to assay all patient doses prior to administration. The dose must be within 10% of the prescribed dose. 
Um, and you should check ID by two methods. Name, date of birth works, um, although I recently had a facility that had two patients with the same name and same date of birth. So something to think about. Um, always, always wear monitoring devices when you're in radiation material areas and you have to store the monitor in a non-radiation area. That's important. Please don't store your radiation badges in the hot lab. Don't store them near the waiting room. Store them in a non-radiation area. The office manager's office is generally a great place to put them. Some people hang up a pegboard uh, near the time clock, something like that works great. Dispose waste only in designated areas. You can't just put waste anywhere you want it. You want to keep it in a designated radiation material area and in their privately shielded containers, and never pipette by mouth. Um, you're gonna survey your generators, your pet berries, and all your injection areas. And I gave you a few extra ones. These are right out of New York State's guide, so it's, it's not bad to get familiar with them. Um, if you do have a technetium and molly generator, you wanna check that generator for, and the key here is, and this could be an exam question, you want to make sure that if you are milking that generator, it's less than 0.5 microcuries of moly per millicurie of tech. And that's the code. Um, so that's the number you're going to want to know. That's right out of NRC and state guides. 0.15 microcuries of moly per millicurie of tech. You want to make sure when you inject the technetium, you don't have the, the, the longer half-life of moly in there. Um, misadministrations, I'd give you just a whole spiel on misadministrations. Definitely read them, um, get to know those misadministrations and what the differences are. I spelled them out for you, so I know we're running out of time, so uh, I'll, I'll just rip through them quick on you. Um, the important part of misadministrations is they're only reportable to the DOH when you've got greater than five REM to the whole body or 50 REM to an individual organ. Um, if you're dealing with iodine, Anytime you have misadministration more than 30 microcuries, you have to report it. But you don't have to report every misadministration to DOH. Five REM to the whole body, 50 REM to individual organ, if the dose, if the dose the patient is going to be in excess of that. And that leaves us with our last quiz. You've got the questions and answers, and that's it. Thank you very much. And we'll, we'll go, be back. We'll um, go ahead and take a 15-minute break and meet back here uh, in 15 minutes.